You're listening to VESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 335. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! How are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, it would take, it would just take too laughing long. and saying that's, right, that's right. That's right. I'm just going to say it's not the most fun being a tour guide traveling uh, by plane these times. So well, that's, uh, let's leave it at that. If the plane are on time and they are not cancelled, then I guess it's okay. But we all know what the situation is. Yeah, we've been living in a completely different reality than we used to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, actually, we're also living in another dimension since the beginning of the month. Did you know? <laughs> no, I haven't noticed, actually. No. Well, it's also not true. There was the claim that CERN opened a portal on July 5th because they put it on again, basically, <laughs> after repairing it for quite some time. And of course, people were, were warning against it, like, be ready for July 5th and protect your energy. <laughs> right. Do not do things that lower your vibration whatever that means yeah but we all you can conclude is no it's not true <laughs> no but it's always been the case with the large hadron collider yeah. that, that every time it's going to start up well now it's the end of the world it will create a black hole or whatever and stuff i don't know me for one i would welcome another dimension because i'm not <laughs> sure that i'm and so also, happy with this would, one if we would Ooh. would we notice like would we care <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> no, 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 no. But but you still live in a country where you probably don't need that much of an alternate reality. But I do, because it's it's not very lovely to be Hungarian these days. Oh yeah. <laughs> and have you heard we are under under investigation? Yes. Because of yeah. the upon time too, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We've well, we've been close. We've been close uh, for a while, but now we, the European Commission, is suing us. I mean, the Hungarian government over a couple of things, like uh, Orbán and and his guys trying to silence a radio station that is usually critical towards them. Mm. It's called uh, Club Radio, where, by the way, the Hungarian Skeptic Society is a regular guest. No wonder they want to shut it down. Huh? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Skepticism and critical thinking is not their not their thing. <laughs> I mean, not Orbán's thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we have an hour long slot called Skeptical Monday there once a month, and uh, we we love doing that. But obviously, it's not because of us. But the other thing is that that the government needs to be able to say that there is no censorship in Hungary. So the way they tried to shut them up was taking away their license to broadcast on the frequency they had previously leased. Because you know that every broadcaster has an assigned frequency or a range of frequencies they can broadcast on from, from time to time. They need to renew their license to use it, which is usually just a formality. But over a year ago, the authority that the government mm. has complete control over decided to give Club Radio's airwaves to someone else, saying it's the nature of these applications. Sorry about that, that they don't, don't always win the game. So, yeah, so far they managed to stay afloat, the ra this radio station, with a massively reduced audience, as you can imagine, because without the airwaves, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same reach. But this year, their application got rejected again. So their future is hanging on a thread. Mm. And the other thing that we are being investigated for, after having been referred to the European Court of Justice, is a law that was recently introduced, and it is basically a way to discriminate against LGBTQ people in the 20-fucking-third century. <laughs> so, Orbán's government banned the use of educational material on the ways of people with uh, difficulties and their gender identities, so that youngsters could be more knowledgeable about the existence of such a thing and all that, and that there are different sexual preferences as well in society. So this is happening now in a massively conservative society, and, and at least one that has been stirred towards that by Orbán's government. And they did this saying it was about the protection of vulnerable children and Christian values. Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. So yeah, fuck that. Christians are very vulnerable to criticism. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and this this obviously goes strictly against European norms and values. Yeah. So the EU decided firstly to withhold certain monetary aids to Hungary, but now we are being investigated by the Court of Justice as well. Good, so good. please, anyone who knows about a well-paid job that I could find and fill in any of the European countries other than my freaking country of birth, don't hesitate to let me know, please. I'm eager to take... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll let Good, you well know. Good, well-paid job. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, we don't have it that bad in Sweden. I mean, we don't need to wrestle a crazy government. But we're still living in a crazy alternate reality in where we have a heat wave, of course. And it's supposed to be yeah. very likely tomorrow, they say, there will be a all-time high record in Sweden, which would be 38 degrees. And remember, we're pretty far north in the world. So that may happen, but I have read on the internet that it's not a problem. Thanks to Edzard Ernst, our friend, I know that you can take sugar pills that would help against that, apparently. And of course, oh, that's, nice. that, that of course not true. Edzard Ernst, for those who don't know, he is a, a professor in <laughs> alternative medicine, and he is a guy who has investigated all different kinds of alternative medicines for ages, and he knows all about it and why they do not work. So he, he, put, he put it on his blog post that, hey, you know, there's a, this homeopath that says there's these six or five or six different pills that you can take that will help you against the heat wave, which is, of course, ridiculous because it's only sugar pills. And there's nothing mm. in them. One of these are supposedly based on poison ivy. So <laughs> I, I'm happy that they dilute the shit out of those remedies so there's nothing left of the poison ivy. But One of my favorite characters in the DC universe, by the way. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, I, I, yeah. I don't think it's her. I think it's the plant. <laughs> oh, too bad. Too bad. Too bad. <laughs> anyway, don't buy that. Don't buy poison ivy to cure your heat wave or your climate change. That's uh, insane. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, is it insanely hot up in Sweden? Pontus? No, it's not. Hasn't hasn't been too bad. Uh, today we had thirty-one degrees, but I said tomorrow it's supposed to be thirty-eight, perhaps. Or in the thirty-eight. In oh my god! Uh, yeah, that high up north. It's terrible, it's though. Climate change. <laughs> yeah, Santa Claus will have to find another place to live, I guess. Yeah. What about in Germany? Have you been able to do much work, Annika? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean enough, you have to take care of a baby. That's good yeah, enough work. I mean, yeah. uh, that's a lot of work. It is. Like, it's unpaid work, but still work nevertheless. Probably the hardest I've ever exactly. worked so far in my life. Yeah. And the most important, no pressure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I still managed to get a bit of work done with our friend Claire. Mm-hmm. Claire, Claire Klingenberg. Mm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. The big boss. Yeah, and she gave me an interview for the Skeptical Inquirer. We put the link into the show notes, of course. And funnily enough, um, we started that interview in 19. (laughs) Then a pandemic (laughs) happened and a kid. And yeah, we finished it uh, now. (laughs) Never give up, Annika. Never give up. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's, um, if I can be so bold, it's a good interview. (laughs) um, Sure it is. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, Claire's answers and she saw it talking about what we can what we'll see in Vienna in September. Mm-hmm. She's really stoking us for that. <laughs> Just give it a read, people. <laughs> we'll do. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely do. And uh, I'm so psyched uh, for these events this autumn. I mean, there's going to be the European Skeptics Congress. There's going to be QED and all that. So we are even going to Australia. I'm really hoping that it's happening and the pandemic doesn't cross our plans. Yeah, so um, a lot of things to look forward to. And one of them, as I mentioned, is QED. And uh, why don't we speak to the people who know the most about how uh, QED is being organized? And those are Alice Howarth and Michael Marshall, also known as Marsh. And to tell us more about uh, QED, here's Alice and Marsh from the UK, who are the among the chief organizers of that event. Hello. Woohoo. Yeah, hi guys. It's uh, it's been a while since we chatted. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but well, yeah, in person that was uh how years. long ago? 2 years? It was More years than two ago. Years? Yeah. <laughs> I bump Andrash, didn't I bump into you in Italy just before the pandemic? 
That's right. I think so. Yeah, we mentioned <laughs> it on the show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just randomly bumped into... So that's the last time I saw you, Andrash. Was yeah, yeah, in yeah, Italy yeah, was... in October 2019. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I also saw you, Alice, around 19 or 18 in Cologne. Yes, yes, I gave a talk <laughs> So you guys have all seen Alice relatively recently compared to... Uh, to I've not seen you guys yes. since, what, QED 2018, I think would have been the last time I, I saw yeah. any of you. Mm. Um Who'd have thought wow. that 2018 was the was the, <laughs> the last, last QD we would have done for, for yeah. so many years? It would have yeah. been more tearful goodbyes if we wouldn't have known. If we'd have known, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, if we'd have known, we probably would have done a 2019 and then take two years off for the, for the pandemic. That, we probably wouldn't right. have taken the, the year off then. But tell us what's coming up about QED. Tell us all about it. Yeah, well, um, it's it's QD 2020 uh, that we're going to be doing in uh, in October. So uh, hindsight is always 2020, right? <laughs> exactly, it's still the QD 2020. Um, so yeah, we've we've been able this year to actually have uh, have QD land on the weekend of Halloween, which is going to be uh, some fun. Uh, I think that's at least. quite exciting. Nice. It's a cool thing for us. <laughs> we we like Halloween. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, we're still in the middle of uh, of arranging all of the the speakers and everything like that, but we've got some really cool things lined up. I, you guys must know the the god awful movies and scathing atheist guys. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sure. so yeah, of course, they're they're fantastic uh, folk, and they've they've done QED for us a couple of times. And this time we're going to put them on the main stage, which uh, we can't fit all their fans in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have realised it's a fire hazard uh, and probably probably a COVID super spreader event this yeah. year if we try and have them in the in the the podcast room um so they're going to be on the main stage and uh who else have we got uh, alice we've got chris jack i'm very excited about chris jackson chris jackson um, is a geologist who um he did the christmas lectures not that long ago he's brilliant he's very exciting he's also from my neck of the woods he's from my hometown so i'm very excited about professor chris jackson um we've got fern riddell who i'm also super super excited about um she's a historian she does loads of stuff for the bbc um she's just generally brilliant she's going to be on the main stage mm-hmm. we're going to have the the whole uh, the whole thing's going to be emceed by um paul duncan mcgarrity now i don't know if you guys saw paul's talk at the last qed he did the uh, the practical guide to attacking castles oh, yes that was it was so hilarious. funny yeah <laughs> it was it was great and we saw I it was the star of 2018 <laughs> he was he was and we sort of sprang it on him a little bit cuz he was meant to be doing that talk in the small workshop room because it's a talk that he's done as a comedy show at the Edinburgh Festival and at various kind of places. So we initially put it in the workshop room where he was expecting a, a, an audience of like a hundred people or something. And then because one of our speakers unfortunately wasn't able to make the weekend after all, literally the morning um, we went to him on the Sunday morning to say, would you mind doing it on the main stage instead? So instead of doing it to a hundred people, <laughs> you'd be doing it to like 600 people. So he was a great sport and stepped up and he's going to be a really fantastic MC. I, I love him a lot. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. He's a, a really nice fellow and a great, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think I watched it two, two or three times in eighteen. His his <laughs> talk, and it was still funny the third time. So, <laughs> yeah, he's he's absolutely fantastic. We saw him actually doing um, a comedy night when we were in at uh, the Edinburgh Festival, and he did this really fun thing where because he's a full-time professional archaeologist as well as a comedian, he would just say to the audience, shout out any invention in all of human history and they'll explain to you why it, that invention only existed because of a sex drive and because of <laughs> the, the, the human need for sex. And everybody was just shouting out random different uh, <laughs> inventions and objects and things and he was finding a way to link it back. Saying, oh, okay, well, this does this, which gets you a, a better mate in this kind of way, so it's all about sex. So yeah, he's, he's a really fun guy. <laughs> uh, who else we've got we've got tom shakespeare who is disability rights advocate and genealogist and and uh, things in that kind of area he's actually from the shakespeare lineage he's, yeah so he's, his... he's one of those shakespeare's <laughs> from the shakespeare family he, he does loads of stuff in bioethics um so i think it's a really interesting topic for a skeptical event for sure yeah great um and yeah, we've got definitely. loads more we're still planning so you know we've got speakers like who else is on on there emma sullivan bissett who's a uh, an academic who looks at the psychology of delusion uh, and she's written uh, and studied um, people who believe that they've been contacted by aliens and things like that. So really kind of classic mm-hmm. scepticism uh, in there. Um, we've got Dr. Azra Raza, who's like an internationally recognized expert in cancer research. I know. I mean, I can't say that it, I'm entirely disappointed that I managed to convince everybody that we book Azra Raza. <laughs> <laughs> cancer topic on the main stage. Very excited. Well, this is the thing, because yeah. this is the first year that you're actually on the organizing board. Yeah. This well, is this is this is my first foray into co-organizing a QED. Because <laughs> so you, you've been on the board for 
about three years now, yeah. um, but we yeah. haven't done a QED in no. that time. So <laughs> you, you prepared for a long time for this, so that's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in 18, you were in Australia, right? In 18, I was in Australia, so I didn't even attend QED in 2018. <laughs> that's right. We linked you up yeah. uh, over the <laughs> Skype or something. In the, yeah, that's yeah. So fun. I've waited a really long time for my next QED. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, of course. So yeah, so uh, we're also in the middle of planning all the other things that we do, so all the panels and work workshops and podcasts and other kind of bits and bobs that go on around the course of the weekend. So it should be fun. We're kind of remembering how we do this uh, after so long, but uh, it should be really fun to see everyone and actually have the community back together again. Yeah. And as usual, one of the best places on the conference to be is at the bar because you meet so much fun people from all around the world and you strike up new acquaintances and you, well, now there are a lot of people that you haven't seen for a long time, as we said. I think this year is going to be even more socially a more fun space because there's people who are new to skepticism, who've joined us through some of the online events that Skeptics in the Pub Online have been doing. And I know that that some of the other groups have done some online Mm -hmm. events. So there's new people in the space and we've all not seen each other forever so it's mm-hmm. going to be really fun right <laughs> exactly so no pressure guys but <laughs> I'm sure that there are high expectations as to as to what we would experience there so uh do you see any kind of reluctance in booking due to covid and and that it's still not completely over yet we've seen a few people who've said that they might not make it because things are oh yeah the world has changed a lot in the last few years, but mm. we're seeing so many regulars booking tickets and being excited to come. Okay. So I, I think we're going to do oh, just fine in terms yeah. of attendance. It's going to be so good to see all those people again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, Skeptics in the Pub online. They are also specially involved this year. Well, it's actually officially not part of QED, but the Friday before. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is something that started a, a few years ago. Uh, well, quite a few years ago now because uh, QED hasn't been around for, oh, a few, yeah. for a few years. But we realized that while we said QED took place on the Saturday and Sunday, loads of people would turn up to the hotel early on Friday to kind of hang out. And we thought, well, we've got all these skeptics together. We must be able to do something with them. And so we started putting on a, a skeptic camp event, which is like a series of short talks throughout the day, like 10 minute talks throughout the day, which every year we kind of have somebody from within the skeptic community help us run it and it's been run by sort of several different people in the past and this year because skeptics in the pub online have done such a fantastic job in putting so many regular reliable skeptical talks on every week and then every fortnight throughout the pandemic we've asked them to take part take part and um, organize and run the skeptic camp so we'll have people who are attending qed as as uh, attendees who who think they've got 10 minutes of interesting material about any topic they think is relevant and they'll be able to put their talks forward and the good thing about Skeptic Camp is because even though it's taking place at the QED hotel, it's not ticketed. Anybody at all can turn up. So if you're around Manchester and for, for whatever reason you can't come to QED on the Saturday and Sunday, you're more than welcome at Skeptic Camp on the Friday. Everybody can come and just enjoy a free day of skepticism. And uh, yeah, if anybody's got 10 minutes of material that they think they want to present to the skeptical audience, then the place to go is to uh, to the Skeptic Camp website or the Skeptic in the Pub SITP.online website where you can submit your talk and uh, and you might be chosen as one of the people to do the presenting on the day. Right. Great. It's always great fun. And we'll put the link in the in the show notes, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 always great. I mean, I, I always feel bad that I never get to see very much of it um, because I'm obviously already too busy organizing the, the, the weekend. But whenever I've dipped in, whenever I've been able to spend a few minutes in there, it's always been a really diverse and interesting mix of topics tied together by the the the, the common thread of skepticism. But it just means that we were able to call on the community where so many people in this skeptical community have so many interesting things to say and so much interesting knowledge and experience that we can put to that the, the people running skeptic camp uh collate and uh and coordinate a really fascinating and diverse day really oh my god i can't, I can't wait to be there <laughs> yes <laughs> so, you're all firing us uh, up <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly even more so than we used to be anything else that you would would like to say well, um, I guess one thing we would say is that if this, if you've never been to QED before, if, if you're a listener who's never been to QED before and you're not sure what to expect, I think we, we try to design it as the most kind of uh, welcoming social space 
that we've experienced in skepticism. We try to take all the things that we've learned from from lots of other events, but we we try to really focus on the attendees and uh, the people who are paying to be there. And we very much see all of the the uh, the content, all the speakers, all the panels as a way of entertaining the audience rather than kind of a way of entertaining the speakers. So it's all about you guys, the people in the audience. And so we like to think that it's a very welcoming space where even if you don't know somebody, if you come along, you'll find people to talk to. You'll find a very welcoming, open, uh, friendly environment. And we have a free crash as well. So we have got free childcare. If you buy yourself a ticket and you've got a child, um, then we will we will look after your child uh, for the course of the weekend. <laughs> don't don't say that. We personally won't look after not your us, child. Not us, not us. People we who are qualified professionals yeah. who yeah. come in and know how to look after your child and yeah. we'll look yeah. after your child. That is that is the better way of explaining that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, Marsh. Oh. Marsh will not be taking care of your child. <laughs> and one thing that is special with QED, I, I think, is that there is no green room. And uh, that sounds like a negative thing, but it's a good thing because it means mm. the speakers are expected to, and I think they all sign up to, also mingle with us ordinary people all the time. So you, you have access to a lot of fantastic people there. Yeah, it's a great space to meet people that you find interesting in the field, other skeptics, other people inside the community, but yeah, also the main stage speakers and and Gam and everybody else will be wandering around mm. the hotel for the entire <laughs> right. weekend and you can buy them a drink and have a chat with them and, and have a nice time. Yeah, yeah, and that's something we do very, very deliberately in that um, we the, there's nothing that makes you feel less like the event is about you as an attendee, as someone who's actually paid to, uh, to be at the weekend. There's nothing that makes you feel less welcome than seeing a VIP space where everybody that is interesting on stage disappears to and then you never see them over the course of the weekend. It doesn't feel like that's a cohesive community. Whereas what's really important to us is the people you see on stage are no better and no different to the people in the audience. They just have something that they, uh, something interesting to say. And everybody in the audience could have something interesting to say and one day be on that stage if they just put work in and put together some some interesting material. So, yeah. But what we do have, which if that sounds very overwhelming for a lot of people, which I'm sure it would, having an entire weekend of wandering around talking to strangers, we do also have a quiet room for anybody who just needs five minutes to get some quiet away from everybody else and just sit with their own thoughts for a bit there's there's a space for that as well yeah mm-hmm. there's no pressures yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you guys have thought of everything <laughs> yeah. well, we, we so we said it's around halloween can we mention the actual dates as well yeah, so it's it's Saturday the 29th and Sunday the 30th uh, of October. And then we have the Skeptic Camp event on the 28th, uh, which is the Friday. So it's it's right. if you're going to come to QED, it's best to kind of turn up on the Friday morning and then you get as much as possible uh, out of the weekend. And because it's over that particular weekend, which is the weekend that the clocks change and we switch back to, <laughs> to, uh, to GMT, you'll even get an extra hour in bed on the Sunday morning. So we've, we've thought of everything. <laughs> Some will need that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's right. either an hour, an extra hour in bed, or for some people, an extra hour at the karaoke bar at three in the morning, as uh, <laughs> as many people end up at. And of course, the three of us, the hosts of the ESP, we have already bought our tickets, so we will be there. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll really look mm-hmm. forward to seeing you guys there and uh, and catching up with you for sure. Great. All right. So looking forward to that. And thank you very much for coming uh, coming on the show to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> we'll catch up soon in person as well. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll see you in a few months at QED. All right. Yes. Bye. Bye. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Okay. So I really, oh guys, I really can't wait to be there. But uh, for now, we are here to do a service to our listeners, which is a complete episode of <laughs> The Goodies. And as usual, starting with This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Trish. Let me start by saying that that there is one person we definitely need to celebrate this week, especially because the whole world does. Gregor Mendel, the great scientist widely considered the father of genetics, was born on the 20th of July, 1822. He later became a monk in Brno, in current-day Czech Republic, and did some amazing work in the study of how certain traits are inherited. He quantified his measurements and his observations, and from that he drew the conclusion that qualities and traits are passed on to the next generation in the form of quantifiable units that follow certain patterns. Brilliant stuff. 
But since we have already featured him on this show, <laughs> ah, I was wondering, yeah. Yeah, on I was episode like, 284. This week we are celebrating the birthday of someone else, of almost similarly high acclaim, but perhaps a little more controversy attached to his name. And that person was Sir Richard Owen, the greatest comparative anatomist and paleontologist of his time, who happened to be Charles Darwin's contemporary and one of his greatest critics as well. He was born on the 20th of July, 1804, a couple of years before Darwin did. He was a controversial figure, especially because he wasn't in agreement with Darwin with regards to natural selection being the background for evolution. So yes, he did support the idea of evolution. He wasn't denying that, but he was more of a creationist than Darwin, and he kept saying that the actual process was much more complicated than what Darwin outlined in his book. Well, when I first read the book... (laughs) I didn't think that could be a more complicated <laughs> way, but yeah, never mind. It was probably because Darwin was so meticulous in outlining all the details as well. So what Owen specifically ridiculed was the idea of any kind of transmutation, especially that of humans from ape-like ancestors. So hence his, um, well, leaning towards creationism instead. He wasn't a creationist, just to be clear about that, as we think of them these days. But uh, he really was held back by the idea of ape-like human ancestors. Well, there were heated debates over the idea of transmutation anyway. So uh, it was really fascinating times, actually, the Victorian era, in my opinion. Some people argue that the reason why he was so adamant in criticizing Darwin was only some kind of jealousy. And there are a couple of incidents in his career that actually support that idea. Because there are accounts of him stealing other people's ideas and even specimens occasionally to publish as his own, which made him very, very controversial. But also he was a great supporter of science and he did apply scientific rigor, even though he must have been heavily influenced by his beliefs. But Owen was undeniably the greatest expert in fossils. In fact, he was the one person who coined the term dinosaurs. So he came up with that... (laughs) And uh, we, we all know that it's stuck <laughs> so well that many of us are very, very fond of them. But mm-hmm. even though he was controversial in that sense, he did something that was genuine and great because he was the one advocating for the establishment of a museum that specifically showcases life and the evolution of life and how everything is connected. And that's the Natural History Museum in London, in South Kensington. And it's how it came about. For a while, he was a curator of that museum as well, the collection of which had previously been part of that of the British Museum. And actually, he argued and Parliament agreed that the amount of fossils and the amount of evidence that people are looking for, especially after Darwin's work, has gained so much popularity, was necessary. Because a lot of people were looking for that stuff that Darwin wrote about. One example of that was the pigeons. I don't know if you remember that in the book, that Darwin wrote extensively about specifically how pigeons transformed and how they were bred in order to look a certain way. And that was amazing. That was absolutely important. And a lot of people were looking for exhibits showcasing that, but there were none. So one of the arguments that he came up with was that it would be necessary to do something like that. But obviously, there were a lot of dinosaur fossils as well. And there were hundreds and thousands of other fossils that he used to work with. So that is definitely a thing that we can thank him for. Mm. So yeah, in in, in the scientific world, he did a couple of things that were controversial, to say the least. For example, on occasion, he was caught writing anonymous letters and comments on things that he didn't agree on with Darwin, and he anonymously praised his own work. (laughs) So it's very... Don't do that, guys. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And isn't that very much like what we can see these days happening online? Like Hmm. people with fake profiles commenting and doing that the troll kind of activities. He would have loved Twitter, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I I think it's safe to say that he was the troll of his lifetime. (laughs) And he had many, many clashes with Thomas Henry Huxley, who is often referred to as Darwin's bulldog. Well, Darwin himself was not eager to confront him, but they did have a couple of clashes as well. 
Anyway, he's a controversial figure. I think this is one of the reasons why he's definitely of interest to skeptics. But he really left his mark in science education and science communication with the establishment of the Natural History Museum as well. And that is a very positive mark. So I praise that. I'm absolutely in love with the Natural History Museum. And every time I am in London and have the time, I do pop in just for fun. And I recommend that to everyone. And when you do, please think of Sir Richard Owen as well. And perhaps thank him for showing the ways of public discourse to avoid as well when it comes to science. Because what he did was not the way that any scientific debate should be done. So the 20th of July is the 218th birthday of Sir Richard Owen. Wow. Happy birthday. Happy Happy birthday, birthday, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I think it's best to move on to find out if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for. Yes, over to another fossil, I almost said. But (laughs) no, that's That's too harsh. That's that's harsh. That's true. But this coming weekend on 24th of July, Frankie will finally go to Canada and he will meet with several indigenous people peoples or representatives thereof and he is expected to apologize for the appalling history of abused school children mm-hmm. and that that happened from the late 1800s to the mid or even to the late 1900s so i think the last of those schools didn't close until the 90s so he addressed his trip he talked about his trip uh, in his angelus prayer last sunday and he called it a penitential pilgrimage So what he emphasized as well was the need for the church to recognize what has happened and to ask forgiveness for it. And and that's quite good, of course. But I can smell another take on this, actually. There was an interview in the Vatican Radio News with Vatican Press representative Father Antonio Hofmeister. He is, uh, well, it sounds very German, but he is an Archbishop of Porto Alegre in Brazil. And for for some time, he also did pastoral work in Canada. So I guess that gives him a link to the whole thing. Oh, that's the connection, yeah. That's the (laughs) connection, yeah. But also that he is the press representative. And the fact that it was in the Vatican radio makes it clear that it's what he's saying is the official opinion of the Vatican and likely approved by Frankie himself. And the angle he spun on this is rather interesting, I think. And I'm going to quote him now. He said, The real problem might be the Canadian government, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who has publicly demanded a papal apology while saying that he is horrified and ashamed by what the Catholic Church did in the residential schools. So he's saying Justin Trudeau is putting all the blame on the Catholic Church. And he has a point because the government was involved as well. And even some Protestant, Protestant schools were involved as well. But Hofmeister continued, quote, I am biased because I'm a priest, but I see that the church is truly working toward reconciliation while the government isn't. The government's agenda in, on many issues, including family and life, is hostile to the church, end quote. Wow. So he's spinning this... I, I would you could put it in three different things here. First of all, the church is not the real bad guy. The Canadian government is. Uh, the second thing is that the church is actually the hero here because the church is working on reconciliation and for the good of the families. And the government is hostile to the church. That's the the third point. I think there's a blame game going on here. He's not entirely wrong. I think the government has an incentive to blame this on the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has an incentive to blame it on the government. And what they are both trying to do, I believe, is to shift the focus away from financial compensation. Aha, okay. Yes. There are some statements that I've read from the indigenous representatives over some time, actually, is that they very much expect the Pope not just to go there and say, I'm sorry, he's supposed to discuss financial compensation as well. And that is not unreasonable. Mm. Well, no amount of money can bring these children back, the children that in some cases ended up in unmarked graves. So that's not the thing. But that's the only thing you can do. 
right? To compensate mm -hmm. the organizations representing the, the indigenous peoples so that they can invest this money perhaps in, in guarding their own culture and, and whatever. Yeah. I think Frankie has been very, very careful not to mention that at all. He's talking about reconciliation, forgiveness, working with yes. the families, looking ahead to make sure that everything is okay. Yeah, but you, you need to cough up and as well. And he's talking about a penitential pilgrimage. So the idea must be that this is the penitence. That that's that's all of it. I mean, I'm I'm right. going there. I'm visiting the places. I say sorry, and uh, we are sorry, and and that's that's about it. Do you know if uh, he's meeting with the Trudeau and the Governor General, who's by the way of Inuit origin, uh, Mary Simon? Yeah. No, I, I I don't know, but I would be surprised if they don't didn't meet up once he's getting okay. there. But I haven't seen that. All the focus in what I've read is about the meetings with the indigenous peoples. And that is the primary reason he's there. Yeah, yeah. And he's leaving on the 24th. 24th, and he will be there. So it's next week. It's Sunday now. Coming Sunday, he's leaving, and he'll be there for almost a week. Wow, that means that we are going to be in, in Canada at the same time, because yes. I'm leaving on the 25th. Ooh. So maybe you could ask <laughs> him yourself a couple of pertinent yeah. questions there. <laughs> yeah, bring it over to the show, and oh yeah, well, bring or, your mic. Or just uh, yeah, <laughs> just bring his attention to this regular segment called Pontus Spokes the Pope. Yeah, I'm sure he's regular follower of it already. <laughs> he must be. <laughs> Has to, right. yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Pontus, for poking Thank the you. Pope once again. And that leaves us with the next thing to do, which is covering the news. Yeah, we start with something that was kind of to be expected, but still pretty bad, because mm -hmm. the pandemic actually meant that we have a record low, <laughs> a record decline in childhood vaccinations, the lowest point of the last 30 years, pretty much. So you're talking about measles and MMR, things like that? In this case, I'm talking about diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. Uh -huh. So the, the usual childhood vaccinations that are necessary, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it fell five percentage points to 81%. And you might think, like, well, 81% is still a good number. Well, but that means that 25 million children missed out on one or more doses. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so that's global. That's global we're talking about. That's global, about. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a huge number. And um, because it's global, it of course, also impacts us. This is very, very dangerous for, for kids. Actually, Catherine Russell, the UNICEF executive director, said the consequences will be measured in lives. And I have to say like that that's pretty much um, drives it home. Why is that so bad? Mm -hmm. The same was true for HPV vaccines that we just talked about a few episodes ago. That means that only a few women and girls, but also boys, are covered with that. And we talked about it, that it can actually save you from getting cancer. And if you're not vaccinated, then that's a problem. People hope that in 2021, we would have a bit of a recovery period, because in 2020, a lot of vaccinations were missed. But actually, it declined even further in 21. So that's, of course, a big problem. And there has to be monumental effort put into into the situation. You mentioned measles before. That's also dropped. It's also on the lowest level since um, 2008. Here, 24.7 million children missed their first measles dose. You, you, we can like we're, we're in in the deep <laughs> with that. Yeah. Measles is especially important because it's so contagious. You need to have at least 95% coverage. Yeah, uh, vaccination coverage to be yeah to have it on under control. Yeah, and this is on eighty one percent too. So <laughs> yeah, um, right. not high enough at all. No. So what we have to do is we have to yeah really try to catch up on the vaccinations. We have to implement strategies to have people believe more in vaccines or trust vaccines more again. We have to ensure that political parties also support that and we have to maybe think about leverages like how how to not enforce but how to motivate people to get vaccinated uh -huh. or the kids to get vaccinated i know from australia for example there is this no jab no play campaign 
maybe that's something that has to be made a global thing. Like they have to be vaccinated to to go to a kindergarten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With only some exceptions. If you are... Of course. If, if you're you cannot be... Of course. For medical reasons, you cannot exactly. be vaccinated. Of course, you yeah. need an exception for that. Of course. Like we're not, we're not discriminating against people that no. can't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everyone who can should, because it's a privilege. Like, we have to just think about it. And, of course, not only anti-vax people didn't get vaccinated. There are several reasons for for people, like, for example, a war in Ukraine, that people Mm -hmm. or kids couldn't be vaccinated. But we really all have to step up. Yeah. And when it comes to the pandemic, it's not only the vaccination rates that really count and really matter. Uh, There are lots of different measures as well that have been implemented throughout the pandemic. When it it comes to all those measures, obviously, we and we have discussed this on the show, that there is a certain element of trust in the governments, in the people that are leading the healthcare system, and they give us advice as to how to behave, what to do what not to do when there's a pandemic going on. And uh, there was a piece of research uh, published recently done by researchers at the Institute for Global Health at the University College London. And uh, they were looking into how excess mortality, which is not only taking into account the COVID-19 deaths, but everything related to the pandemic situation. So excess mortality, how does it relate to levels of democratic governance? There is an institute called the VDEM Institute, a Varieties of Democracy Institute, led by Professor Stefan Lindberg at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And they have been doing this for a long, long time. And just before the pandemic, there was a massive gathering of data of how democratic certain governments are, specifically around Europe, but they looked at some other governments as well around the world. They tried to put together all the data. They have found that the stronger the democratic values are and the, the more democratic the system was, the lower the number of excess death uh, was during the pandemic. And that was a very strong correlation that they have found. Wow. So much so that like a one point increase, so it's a, it's like a, a hundred point scale, uh, the VDAM index, what it's called. Uh, so uh, a one point increase in the VDAM score was associated with a 2.18 fewer excess death per 100,000 people. It doesn't seem that much, but when we're talking about millions and millions of people, it really matters. So it's... Are you saying that democracy works, Andros? That it's good for people? Well, this is this is what we've been doing, we've been saying <laughs> all along, right? Because uh, in a democratic, more democratic country where the certain policies are being formed by experts on certain fields i think this is much more important this this is where the most forward-looking ideas are being nurtured and and that means that the decisions are based on that and uh they have controlled for a lot of different age, gender, national wealth, and all that kind of uh, stuff as well. And the correlation has still been very, very strong. So obviously, there are certain limitations. One of them is that the VGM index was assessed prior to the pandemic, although there are those who argue that uh, the pandemic made the governments less democratic. But that's only because people, a lot of people don't understand what democracy is all about. So making tough decisions and forcing people to stay home, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's undemocratic. If it's if it means that if you don't stay home, that you kill other people or cause the death of other people, then it's your duty to stay home and stay the fuck put so uh yeah so yeah no no pure speculation from my side is that if you have a democratic government or country you tend to trust the government more and then yes exactly and then if the government says guys you need to take this vaccination you need to take these precautions and you trust what they're saying then there's a bigger chance that the people follow the recommendations yeah. One thing that, that, that the interesting question now remains as to what lies behind and beneath that kind of correlation, but the correlation has definitely been shown. Yeah. 
Referring back to what you said, Annika, before about vaccinations, there's another anti-vax story from Sweden coming up. The Swedish police is investigating a case of an anti-vax site on the internet who has published the names, personal information and, and more about 800 children below the age of 12 who have received COVID vaccinations. Lovely people, aren't they, the anti-vaxxers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this site says that the Swedish Public Health Agency should be prosecuted for crimes against humanity and nonsense like that. The agency is responsible, they say, for, quote, the explosive increase in miscarriages, cancer cases and children born without immune systems, end quote. Which, of course, is nonsense. There's no such thing. It's not real. But what is real is that somehow these anti-vaxxers have gotten their hands on classified information directly from the registers of from the health authorities. <laughs> and they have found it appropriate to publish birth date, names, date of vaccination, where it happened, which vaccine that was administered, even the actual vaccine batch number wow. that was used. And they put it on the internet for all to read. The people behind this site are now being investigated for illegally hacking into classified data. So far, they seem to defend themselves with that they have actually not done that. They have found the information on a Russian dark website somewhere. And that they have much more information. And then they slipped on the keyboard and uploaded it, right? No, no. They probably don't say that they didn't publish (laughs) it deliberately, but they didn't breach the data security. They actually found the information. But it's even somehow it's more even more disturbing that somehow out there on Russian dark websites, there are all the information, perhaps, of all people who got vaccinated and maybe even more things like that. So, yeah, we will see how that goes. The good thing is that the police says that they have leads and um, it sounds like there will be prosecutions. I couldn't find... Because the Swedish media is responsible, they didn't publish the URL to the site. So I don't know what site they're talking about. Uh, so that also means that I don't know if, if the information is still up there or if it has been taken o- offline. But uh, guys, if you are saying that you're working against the evil government, don't hang out children's personal information on a website for people to find and then potentially harass these people. That that is don't um, do that anyway. No, no, never do that. <laughs> yeah. But you're not winning the moral <laughs> argument here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just talked about the police pontus, and I want to talk about something that keeps police pretty busy in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's the so-called Europol ploy. Interestingly, I also got these calls. (laughs) So I can even tell you out of my personal experience what that's like. But I didn't fall into the trap because I got informed by media that it's a ploy. It's a scam. Scammers impersonate Europol officers and call people and um, tell them um, in a very, like it's a machine voice and it tells you, your ID has been called into an identity fraud or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Has been used, blah, blah, blah. And then they tell you, like, press one, two. And then when you press one, you get connected to an actual person that will then tell you that you should yeah send money quickly because yeah your id has been found alongside drugs or <laughs> whatever and and you could either be arrested or lose all your money if if you don't send a lot of money that's of course a scam but what they did do is that they spoof the europol's phone numbers so it looks like europol's calling if you google the number then it shows that Europol is calling <laughs> wow and that's pretty bad of course because if you're skeptical and then you Google the number and it shows you that's Europol, then you're like, oh, it has to be genuine then. (laughs) Yeah. But the thing that can help you with that is that Europol said they are not in a legal position to call people and to ask for money. Like, they will never ask for your money. (laughs) If the police calls you up and asks for money. Yeah. Mm, Maybe it's not the police. If if they send you a speeding ticket and ask for money, yeah, that's usually... That's usually legit. But that, then they don't ask. They, they tell ask for you money. where they, they tell you to do that. Yeah, it's, exactly. they demand money. And <laughs> yeah, 
They exactly, threaten you with Europol legal can't. issues. <laughs> The problem is they're wow. calling so many people that police is really struggling and um, they, they are almost there. It's hard for them to follow up. And so of course, make even harder because police forces are separate in Germany into six, 16 federal states. Wow. Mm. That has been a problem in the past when there were criminals that had hostages and they just went over federal state borders and police couldn't follow them. Yes, that that actually happened. And it's a problem now because if, if there are 16 different groups, of course, it's hard <laughs> to work on that big wave of, of calls. So the, the best thing we can do is to inform about it, which we are doing right now. <laughs> and Deutsche Telekom, which is the phone provider of a lot of people in Germany, and they're working on changes that you can't spoof numbers that easily anymore. Yeah. Right. So let me ask a question. Is there no national police force separate, like the FBI in the US, that can cover all the, the states? Good question. I can't answer the, that to you like from my heart. I mm-hmm. know that there are like special teams, like a SWAT team. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there are like special forces um, for that are sent to different hotspots. For example, if there's a big demonstration coming up. But about it, like a unified group, I would yeah. have to do some research and come back to you. Homework for next, next week. week. Yes, then, exactly. <laughs> I, will, I will come back with that next week. <laughs> okay. It's interesting that there are countries where there are separate forces of law enforcement. Like in Hungary, there is only one that has certain levels, a municipal level. It has a, a, like a county level, like a, a country level. But for example, in Italy, there are two law enforcement forces, uh, the Carabinieri and the Polizia. And they are two separate entities, a completely separate entities. One of them belongs to the Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs and the other one belongs to the Ministry of Defense. It's like really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they, they, all, they, all, they work together a lot. Well, that, if they do that, that's okay. But if they are two different separate organizations that won't talk to each other, then that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And there's uh, the RCMP in Canada, but they, they, they're supposed to be sitting on horsebacks. Uh, not anymore. Ooh. Not more of them. Not many <laughs> no, of them. Not many no, of them. I don't think so. It's only for parades. <laughs> yeah. But they, they are still called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So. Mm. <laughs> All right. Anyhow, talking of, of different countries, and uh, I can't get rid of the idea of linking politics to skepticism. So... Uh, let's go to the UK. And I'm pretty sure that all of us rejoiced at uh, the announcement of the resignation of Boris fucking Johnson. So, uh, <laughs> interesting name. <laughs> that was about time. However, we might end up having massive issues with the candidates that are in our uh, view. So, one of them is called Penny Mordrint, and she is quite a likely candidate to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and, as a result, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And from a sceptical point of view, the biggest problem with her is that she is a big supporter of homeopathy. Wow. And she has... She's up there with the prince and the royal house. But imagine that. Imagine that. Mm. If If the Queen dies and that idiot becomes king... And then this woman becomes prime minister. <laughs> then the UK will have a prime minister and a king who both support in are in support of uh, of homeopathy. And she has Penny Morgent has repeatedly argued for the homeopathy being available on the NHS, meaning that the public healthcare system should pay for homeopathic remedies being applied as well. Even though there has been a lot of debate over that, and even politicians like the healthcare spokesperson for the Liberal Democrats, Stacey Cooper, they have said specifically that it's no use and government money should not be paid out on something that lacks evidence of efficacy. Even uh, the the Guardian article that I came across uh, reading about this mentions Michael Marshall. Ah, Marsh, yeah, I was just uh, thinking about that. We will have to put Marsh <laughs> on the case here. <laughs> exactly, and especially because the Good Thinking Society has been doing a lot of important work 
into making sure that the NHS drops support for homeopathy. And it has been going on for a while and it's, it's gradually happening. But if this woman, Morgent, becomes prime minister, that might be overturned. And we don't want to see that. Yeah, keep an eye out for those who becomes the next story leader and the next prime minister of the United Kingdom. Mm. Okay, I want to refer back to the last couple of episodes, mm-hmm. actually. We have... Uh, more info about the recent flag-waving incident on the ISS. As we mentioned, there were three cosmonauts that were waving the, the flags of the new states of Donetsk and Luhansk that was proclaimed by Russia in Ukraine, even though Russia has no business proclaiming uh, new states within Ukraine. The obvious guy to be behind that, we speculated last week a little bit, who's behind this? Is Were they behind it themselves, the, these three cosmonauts, or did they have help? And we decided they obviously had help. And the obvious guy to be behind that is probably the now recently former head, what do you say, of the Russian space agency Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin. He was removed from his position by Putin last Friday. Yeah. Do you think it has anything to do with that, this, uh, this action? I, we don't know, but maybe there are, you could speculate. Uh, Rogozin is a big supporter of Putin's. He is a politician, he's a diplomat and a war enthusiast who was appointed as the head of Roscosmos in 2018. And uh, for being a diplomat, he has a history of being rather undiplomatic, to say the least causing controversy, both when he was the ambassador to NATO, which he was for a while, and more recently in repeated tweets about the nuclear capabilities of Russia's Satan II missile. (laughs) And he Mm. said in the tweet that they were a present for NATO, quote-unquote. So he's really a, well... A ray of sunshine. Yes, you could say that. (laughs) When he was the head of uh, Roscosmos, <laughs> which he was very recently, he also threatened via Twitter that he might uh, leave American astronauts stranded on the ISS if the US didn't stop supporting Ukraine. That was, of course, ridiculous, but very disturbing to hear. He has also engaged in a rather childish Twitter war with another rather childish Twitter person, <laughs> namely Elon Musk. Oh yeah, he, um, who's not going to be the owner of Twitter? Apparently, no. We no. He's <laughs> at uh, least not anytime soon. No, I don't think he will. Nothing points towards that. But anyway, Rogozin has a military background, and he was involved in the annexation of Crimea, or at least in the aftermath of that, I think, and among other things like that. And he is very hostile to Ukraine and also to Lithuania, I believe. Now. Back to your question, Andras. I'm just speculating here, but the same date that he was removed from his post as the head of Roscosmos, Roscosmos and NASA made a joint statement that they will resume integrated flights, meaning that cosmonauts will be taken by SpaceX to the ISS and astronauts will be allowed on Soyuz missions. So Mm, there is a temporal correlation. All of this could be read as uh, that uh, Rogozin was behind the flag-waving incident and Putin decided he finally crossed the line and he was jeopardizing the collaboration with NASA, so he was removed. That would fit the facts, but there are also other rumors that Putin removed him from Roscosmos, not because he wasn't happy with what he was doing there, but because he's going to put him in charge of the occupied parts of Ukraine. And that is also very plausible, given Rogozin's history with Crimea. So (laughs) we don't know. In any case, in my book, I think we do have a good candidate for who was planning the the ISS flag-waving incident, whether or not it was done (laughs) with Putin's (laughs) approval or not. But I don't think that these cosmonauts could have pulled it off without help from above, sort of. Above, <laughs> yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah. that's a good. That was a good one. <laughs> Unintentional, <laughs> funny <laughs> statement there. <laughs> all right, uh, that has been all the news, and uh, that leaves us with finding out who's been really wrong lately. 
Yeah, and this is um, unintentionally funny too. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I just want to talk to you about blood transfusions, blood donorships. Mm-hmm. Because That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I think if I needed a blood transfusion, what would you think about first? Vampires. Yeah, vampires. I wouldn't like, no, probably wouldn't have thought of vampires first. <laughs> maybe second. First, I would probably think like, hey, maybe do I survive this accident because I need a blood transfusion? Whatever, ah, you okay. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something I probably wouldn't think of is, has the person been vaccinated or not that gave me that blood? <laughs> Especially oh, no. because vaccinations in a blood donor don't protect you from anything. Like, they don't carry over sufficiently the antibodies. But <laughs> there's still <laughs> a group called Safe Blood or Safe Blood Donation that are afraid of the mRNA vaccines like the COVID vaccine, a few of the for COVID vaccines, and they're afraid of the spike proteins. They say, well, what if we need blood from people that have been vaccinated? Uh? So yeah, this Safe Blood Donation, they only want blood donors that haven't been vaccinated. <laughs> Yeah, that's stupid and fear-mongering and wrong in so many levels. It's ignorant because they don't know, apparently have no clue how vaccinations work. Yeah, exactly. As I said, like it doesn't carry over. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And they're doing no, in that in theory, a situation it could, where... actually. Hmm? Oh, really? In theory, it's in, in theory, it could. Mm-hmm. It's just... Uh, I think it doesn't, it's not enough. Like it could, I, th- I think it carries over, but... Exactly. It's not sufficient amount. So, uh, because it, when you're donating blood, it's about one-tenth of the overall amount of your blood that you give. And it's not going to have enough of any kind of antibodies. I can imagine, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm just uh, talking off the, the top of my head now. So, it's uh, in theory, it could be that there are some kind of filters that they use that could remove even significant amount of antibodies. But I don't think that's the case. It's I, I think it's the amount is, yeah. is insufficient. I low. think so. I think you're giving them too much credit, Anders. I think that (laughs) these guys don't want vaccinated blood because they think there is still vaccine in the blood. And that is ignorant, if they think that. Because the vaccine is not there for many days. And the vaccine is definitely not there. No, obviously. The vaccine will be gone. uh, (laughs) Antibodies, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that even that, yeah. um, I, like when I was still was a regular blood donor, they even said like, technically you could donate blood when you're drunk because it's not enough blood that they take out that has enough alcohol in it. So like okay, it wouldn't good. make the... The problem is if you're drunk, it's very hard to find the right vein to put the needle in because... As a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> they, they usually say you can't be drunk because you will feel bad if you donate uh, that much of your blood. <laughs> um, because yeah, that's, yeah, that's more for sure. Drunk. But um, no, let's not talk about blood donorship trivia. Let's talk about this safe blood donation group because they're fear-mongering in a situation where Central Europe and probably m- most of the world is in a very hard situation needing blood donors anyways. I don't know how it is in Sweden and in Hungary, but in Germany... They're pretty much sitting on the dry, the hospitals. Yeah. No, yes. there's, there's yes. always a need a for more issue. donations. Exactly. And and it's worse now. <laughs> and they're making it even worse. And for being ignorant and fear-mongering, the Safe Blood Donation receives this week's prize for being really wrong. Very good. Very well deserved. Very good. Well deserved indeed. Yeah, it was well deserved. And thanks to our listener, Douglas, who sent this in. So thank you very much for doing that. And if you have an idea for a really wrong, a really right, or a news item, or whatever, (laughs) you can always send us an email at info at theesp.eu. So thank you, Douglas. Yeah, do get in touch. And uh, you can do it by email. You can find us on Twitter, espodcast underscore eu. And uh, on Facebook as well. And on Instagram. (laughs) And now we are on Instagram as well. Yeah, so uh, do follow us. Who knows? If you feel like it, you might as well uh, decide to donate a little bit. Oh, yes. And (laughs) then you should go to Patreon slash The ESP. And uh, you can find all the rules there. There are different levels you can put. But basically what you do is you pledge to pay us $1, $2, $3 per episode that we release. And you can put a monthly cap as well. If we decide to to issue 10 episodes one month, uh, (laughs) you could could limit it to the first four. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And please don't donate any blood to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, unvaccinated or vaccinated. It doesn't matter. We don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and if you feel like uh, donating to other causes as well, we still do have on our website a list of recommended organizations to donate to uh, organizations that help people in Ukraine, if if you feel like uh, helping them out somehow. All right, but that has been all that we could squeeze in this week's episode. But before we go, we need a quote to finish on. Yes, and I thought we quote a person that was born in 1983, who is a British skeptical activist, a journalist, a public speaker, a podcast, an author, a blogger, and the editor of The Skeptic magazine. And who could I talk about? Of course, Michael Marshall that we talked with before. Yeah, and, and who just happened to be mentioned on several occasions on this episode as well as being a guest. So yeah. Yeah, and the quote is as goes. It's important that we as scientists and skeptics remain open for claims and dialogues. Yes. That's it. That Short is and right. sweet. <laughs> and he really puts his money where his mouth is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Be Reasonable podcast, he's unbelievably effective in doing yes. that. He's inspiring, I think, for all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, many, many thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Wieslat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu join us again next time but until then please send your feedback comments or death threats to info at the esp.eu we would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent if you have a local event or organization to promote please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe It's... Different world. Yeah, it's crazy. That was a segue to you, Annika, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that that was a <laughs> that was your cue. <laughs> that works. Very good. Like a pro. Like a pro. Like someone <laughs> who's been doing, been doing this doing for a while. For years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Now we get Hi. some company I'm here. Sorry. Very happy Hello. company. Hello. <laughs> Hello. 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 That's very good. But it makes for bad <laughs> podcasting, I think, if we just said hello for, for, for an hour. Yeah. Hello. She's trying to call you on the phone. Like she's holding the microphone. She like, can't hear us. Uh, <laughs> stupid. Nah, stupid. Yeah, she can't hear you guys. Okay, you want to go to Daddy? Yeah, come here. <laughs> <laughs>